Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing Extra, a podcast from the Institute for Government. The question for today is where next for English devolution? We'll be discussing what progress the government has made in devolving power across England, whether its approach has been a success, and what Labour's devolution agenda might look like if it forms the next government. And we're very pleased to be working in partnership on this special episode with Grant Thornton UK. My name is Akash Pound, I'm Programme Director for Devolution here at the IFG and a close observer of all things devolution related, as are, I think it's fair to say, all four of our excellent panellists. So joining me here in the IFG basement studio, first of all we have Simon Christian, who is Director of Public Service Consulting at Grant Thornton UK. Simon, welcome and thanks for your support of our work. Thanks Akash, great to be here. Cheers. And uh, then dialing in specially from her holiday, I believe, is Charlotte Aldrich, Chief Executive of the Centre for Progressive Policy, which is an economics think tank that champions inclusive growth. Charlotte, thank you for joining and apologies for disrupting your week off. Not at all. Thank you for having me. Also with me in the studio is Mark Sandford, who's a senior research analyst at the House of Commons Library, devolution and local government expert, and once upon a time, my colleague at the UCL Constitution Unit quite a while ago. A very long time ago. But good to see you again, Mark. And finally, we're joined by Adam Hawksby, former advisor to West Midlands Mayor Andy Street. So he's been involved in making devolution work in practice. And now he's deputy director of the think tank Onward. Adam, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Back in 2015, George Osborne, he was, of course, Chancellor of the Exchequer, promised a devolution revolution for England, no less. And since then... Well, there's been a lot of activity. There's been plenty of devolution deals. We've seen the election of metro mayors, the creation of combined authorities in nine English regions, with more to come over the next year. But what does all that amount to? Have we seen anything like a revolution in English governance? Charlotte, I want to come to you first. What, what, what do you think? I mean, how much progress has actually been made? I think it's felt at times that we've teetered on revolution, but government's pulled its punches every time. I think if I go back to 2013-14, when I left central government to um, head up the City Growth Commission that was chaired by Jim O'Neill, the task before us seemed absolutely enormous. This was about really fundamentally changing how central government perceived the capacity and potential of local government, how local government was to try and build up trust in central government, and how you could ultimately then enable a shift in power from the centre to localities. And we saw the emergence of um, combined authorities and the Northern Powerhouse and and those other vehicles that were to be the mainstays of Osborne's devolution revolution. And I think we've seen huge progress. Obviously, I've listed a whole set of institutions, formal or otherwise, that have galvanised the agenda and brought it into being. But unfortunately, some of those same centralizing tendencies that were the impetus behind this agenda have still been in play. And recent CPP research has shown that there's actually more people employed now by central government than there was over a decade ago. And 
the local government workforce has been significantly cut. And obviously, the kind of austerity agenda, we know that local government was hit hardest of the government departments. So I think the devolution revolution and It was an ambitious agenda that for us at CPP was rooted in the right idea of how local places could be in greater control of their own economic destiny and collectively that would add up to a more productive and prosperous UK PLC. But on the other hand, Osborne was taking away some of the very resources and capacity that local government needed to deliver on that potential. Mark, what do you think? I completely agree with everything that Charlotte said. I think the amount of progress, given where we started with this agenda 10 years ago, has been huge. I would not have believed it if you'd, gone, if you'd told me then that we, were, that we are where we are now. Equally, I think that that progress has demonstrated how far there is to go, particularly in terms of, um, as, as Charlotte said, pulling, pulling punches by government, duplicating mandates between metro mayors and other public bodies, and a kind of unwillingness from central government level to allow mayors to lead and take action on their own account. Whereas what we've seen a lot of the time is more than one public body having powers, spending money in particular areas and general confusion and unsureness about who is leading. So I think there's a a long way to to go yet. There's a lot of things that could be done, a lot of low-hanging fruit for future governments. Adam, where do you think devolution really has worked well and has made a positive difference to people's lives, which, well, ultimately is the purpose of all this? So I think it's the big economic powers. My mayors have been really important, right? And you've seen that in the Liverpool City Region Combined Authority, Steve Rotherham using his gain share, that flexible revenue funding he got as part of his Devo deal for this phenomenal kind of Liverpool City Region Connect, this broadband fibre kind of backhaul project. Not the sort of stuff that's going to get the headlines necessarily. It's not quite as flashy as Andy Burnham's B network, but it's the kind of scheme that you can only really unlock at the scale of a region of a combined authority with that kind of single accountable form of leadership. So on the economic side of things, there have been loads of, I think, really excellent projects and I think just look at how someone like Andy Street has used the adult education budget has used the massive amount of money he's got around adult skills completely transform the profile of spend there moving away from quite low quality kind of level one level two qualifications a, an IT course a maths course something like that to programs that are higher skilled that are getting people into real jobs in a region which really needs it it's got massive unemployment challenges so I think on the economic side of things has been enormous change and that's been really positive it's on some of the other areas where both Charlotte and Mark touched on that there's been less progress around things like public service transformation early on there was an idea that this might be the return of things like total place of using money much more effectively to target prevention and things like health education and welfare now in some ways that's fine you know the model needs to develop on things that might be more natural natural territory, transport skills, housing are kind of easier uh, in some ways to do for those leaders. But if the model's really going to work, if you're going to see that proper devolution, particularly fiscal devolution, then you're going to need to see the model expand into other areas. And that'll only come once I think it matures and beds in a bit more. Simon, what what do you think explains the the quite variable picture, I think, that we've started discussing? I mean, why, why has devolution gone so much further and taken root so effectively in some places like Greater Manchester, but has struggled to get off the ground at all elsewhere, for instance, in your your home county of Hampshire? Well, I think it's all obviously interconnected. 
So I think some reflections first, uh, I suppose, on, on, on the initial comments around has there been significant progress? I think, well, yes, in terms of building consensus around policy that, you know, devolution is a good thing at tackling some of those really big issues that local places face. But then it's fundamentally failed in translating that policy into strategy and changing culture at the places that actually need to deliver it. So, you know, if we think about that timeline in terms of 2015, well, you know, five of the combined authorities were already in train prior to 2015 already. The building blocks for actually enabling devolution around combined authorities as being a vehicle to deliver larger strategic objectives of a place was already there. So in terms of the broader objective around the policy and getting consensus on that that's been great and that's been moving but actually what we've not understood is how in those areas that potentially are less mature in terms of their infrastructure and their institutions so outside of the greater manchester outside of liverpool outside of those types of places actually how do you build the capability within the institutions to actually take on those types of responsibility and i suppose this is where we hit that sort of mismatch at the moment in terms of why we're struggling because fundamentally policy is focused around strong leaders rather than strong institutions and ultimately that doesn't filter out into some of the broader areas we're actually wanting to come together so it's the role of government the role of civil service in terms of how to broker some of those deals and that's where there hasn't been enough maturity in the conversation and approach charlotte you you mentioned that issue of uh, capacity earlier and noted that local government has been hit quite hard by 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 cuts since uh, 2010 i mean what, what do you think needs to be done to to build capacity, build those institutions in the way Simon was just describing, so they are better able to, to take on the powers and, and play that role in leading economic and, and wider strategy in their places. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think if we look at how combined authorities have been established and maturing over that time, they've had to do so whilst scrabbling for cash, basically, and whilst their constituent local authorities have been having to make considerable budget cuts. And I think that lack of certainty, that lack of financial certainty, has played a part in slowing down that maturing process, or at least kind of posing initial barriers. I think places like the West Midlands and Greater Manchester is a different case for its own kind of historical reason. But I think some of the combined authorities have learned to do this better than others, essentially. North of Tyne combined authority, soon to be, again, northeast combined authority. I think there are examples where, despite the financial problems, they've been able to make headway. And I think that is to do with strength of leadership, which is important. But that institution building has been challenging. So, there's a whole list of things that I would urge the Chancellor to do now when it comes to local government finance reform, part of which I think will help to bolster the sector landscape, both for constituent local authorities and for combined authorities. And I think it will also open up prospective places who aren't yet combined authorities to have the wherewithal to kind of make that step so that finance and financial uncertainty and instability, volatility, and, you know, let's be honest, real risk aren't the barriers to 
building those effective institutions. Mark, I saw your ears prick up at the the, the phrase local government finance reform. You're 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 one Always. of the small number of people who yeah get excited at that that topic. I think. What do you think uh, needs to happen in, in in that space if if the evolution is to move to the next to the next stage, so to speak? Two main things. Um, more money, and I know that's something a lot of people are going to be saying over the next couple of years and be disappointed about, um, but more money transferred into this, this space from elsewhere and permanence. I think that it's very difficult for any in- institution to build lasting capacity when you don't know what you're going to be doing three years down the line. I think that's a, that's a challenge. And I think it's interesting, um, going back to the general issue of capacity, I don't think it's any coincidence that the places that have struggled with combined authorities are places that are comparatively small in population terms and that don't have a sitting bureaucracy in the form of something like an integrated transport authority. Kimshire and Peterborough, west of England, and perhaps to a lesser extent, Tees Valley. Those other large urban areas had a lot of people in place who could do a job from day one. And when you've got to set up a bureaucracy from, from scratch and you can't see yourself going beyond one or 200 people, that makes building capacity a whole lot more difficult. Yeah. And Simon, is uh, funding reform along the lines Mark suggested crucial here, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think it's that long-term funding horizon that enables places to come together and actually talk meaningfully about the plans that they want to um, deliver within those communities. So I think if we we think about that in the conflict with some of the governance sort of models as well at the moment, I think that's quite challenging. And I know we're going to come into that later on. But you think about some of those time horizons and the mayoral model, think about the delivery of transport infrastructure, housing infrastructure, skills development. You're talking 15, 20, 25 years worth of time horizons, not four or five years worth of mayoral sort of delivery. So actually, how does that sort of butt against actually some of the policies that are wanting to be provided in terms of people wanting to come on, make a mark, deliver things within a short period of time but actually do the right things over the long period of time and that's actually where that longer term governance accountability scrutiny and involvement from constituent authorities is really key while they're firefighting while they're trying to deal with you know 40 50 80 million pound deficits in some places while there's a structural funding issue across the country in terms of those places that are most in need not getting the appropriate amount of funding in health children social care in housing actually how are you going to free up the corporate capacity, the headspace to really think about some of those big challenges. So we've got about a year to go, give or take, until the next general election. Adam, do you think the government has the time also the capacity and and the political will to get more done in terms of further devolution deals and further progress with this? So it absolutely has time. Most of the legislation and the policy frameworks are in place that you would need to do devolution, particularly if it's about bringing other areas up to the levels that already exist in places like Greater Manchester and the West Midlands. You've probably got the fiscal space to do some of it. Quite a lot of the powers are about transferring budgets from one part of government to the other, not about new funding. The exception is the kind of gain shares, the investment packages. But my understanding is that that funding still exists within certain departmental settlements. The question, as you say, is about will. Now, if the government wanted to, if they really put their minds to it, they could create a raft of new mayors in the next year's time. I mean, God, they developed a £36 billion transport package in a series of weeks, right? If they decide that is the thing they want to do, then they can do it. 
at the moment, the barriers to that are more political than they are in policy terms. And that's both local politicians. So there will be uh, councillors, kind of leaders of council, some of them Tories, some of them Labour, that will say they're concerned about the creation of a new politician. You've got to sweeten the deal to try and make sure that they feel it's in their interest. Um, and it's also politicians in Westminster, whether, again, they are Tory, Labour, Lib Dem, uh, they are nervous about having a new politician in their patch and need to be persuaded. And the reason there needs to be political will is that in the year before an election, you've got to decide that that's what you're going to have a fight with a member of parliament or a council leader about when they might actually be your foot soldiers when it comes to polling day. So that's why they need to decide this is something they want to do, but it's perfectly uh, possible in practical terms. Before today's discussion, to learn more about how devolution has been working in practice in, in some of the places where it has been implemented, I've been out on the road chatting with a few people involved in actually making devolution work or observing from the outside. So I'm standing in uh, Manchester city centre in uh, Piccadilly Gardens, for those of you who know the layout of the city. Um, we're at the main transport interchange. I'm joined by my colleague uh, Tom Pope and uh, IFG Manchester resident. Tom, hi. Hi Akash. Hi, and uh, well, so what we're doing actually is uh, waiting to jump on one of Andy Burnham's new big yellow B network buses. We've just seen a couple pass, uh, which is quite exciting. I can see another one just down the road as well. And uh, well, Tom, uh, do you want to say a bit about the B network and uh, why this is such a big deal for the mayor and potentially for Manchester as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the B network is a plan to integrate transport across Greater Manchester, not just the buses, but also integrating it with the tram and in the longer run with trains as well. And that's something that only really happens in London in, in the UK. And it's an opportunity for Greater Manchester to actually integrate transport be more strategic about how they use transport to try and build some of their bigger aims and given that buses in most parts of the country are run privately routes are decided privately yeah and um, this is a real opportunity for local leaders that other places haven't had before so it's a really important exciting step for devolution yeah and i mean transport has been as you say kind of key priority for greater manchester and and some of the other combined authorities as well i mean why is transport in your view so central to the type of regional economic strategy that that metro mayors try to lead on yeah and greater manchester have set this out in their strategic plan really well i think that you know we know that cities in this country outside of london are underperforming they're they're below average productivity whereas in most countries they're the economic powerhouses that are really productive and transport's a really big part of that because what, what you want for a city is to build that agglomeration, to have people to be able to travel across the city to get to the best jobs so that you can match up people uh, with their skills and the businesses, you can attract businesses to a place. Right. And in lots of cities like Greater Manchester, there are pockets of the population sort of in the outskirts who, who are not well enough connected to the centre, that the bus network and the tram network at the moment doesn't serve them well enough. And actually a, a, a key strategy for Greater Manchester and for other places too, is linking together those places into the centre better so you can have a more coherent city region. If you have that transport, then you can build your skills strategy on top of that, your housing and spatial strategy on top of that as well. Yeah, yeah. But without the transport, that's really hard to do. Okay, great. So uh, as, as I mentioned, I mean, you're our 
Manchester correspondent for the Institute for Government, but I understand you've not yet got one of these buses, is that right? I haven't, and very much looking forward to doing that shortly. Okay, should we jump on one then? Let's do that. This is A37, service to Bolton. Well, there you are, we're on our first uh, B Network bus journey. We've got jumped on the bus to Bolton, which I think is about an hour away, so we're not going to stay all the way. Tom, we were just talking about this as the first steps in a, in a longer journey of, of transport integration. So you actually sit half of the week inside Greater Manchester Combined Authority, where they've recently negotiated a, a trailblazer deal for, for more devolution. What's that going to change? Um, I mean, particularly around transport powers, but maybe more broadly. Yeah, I mean, on, on transport, the big commitment there was that by 2030, there's a plan to integrate lots of the local rail network into the B network as well. And this is the ambition of having a transport system that's much more like London. So for those who live in London, you know you have a single fare, a single integrated system, contactless ticketing across the whole network. And at the moment here, um, and, until recently, you'd have, you know, if you had a journey that required a bus, a tram and a train, that's three different fares, three different networks, incredibly complex and really dissuades that kind of travel and that's the big ambition. But the other thing that the Trailblazer deal introduced is that on transport and on other areas as well is really promising is a, a single settlement, so a, a pot of money that Manchester decides what to do with. Um, at the moment, lots of the funding, particularly for capital projects like transport and for skills as well, comes through very specific pots that are often short term that different areas need to bid into central government for. The single settlement promises to bring all of that together um, as a sort of single pot for Greater Manchester to spend. Yeah, moving beyond what Andy Street's called the begging bowl culture of, of local and devolved leaders having to go to Whitehall and ask for little bits of money for this project and that project. That's the idea, isn't it? Exactly. I think many would argue this is what true devolution looks like. It's not just local areas able to ask central government for what they think are good projects and have central government judge it. It's really local decision making about how to spend money, uh, which is going to be a big step for combined authorities, uh, both in Greater Manchester and the West Midlands and probably more um, authorities down the road, because at the moment most of what they are doing is working out what are good plans locally and then trying to find local government, uh, central government money to fund it, whereas yeah. now they're going to have much more autonomy. Now with, with that comes more responsibility as well, they're going to need to account for how they're spending the money and ensure they're spending it well, but local leaders are confident that they understand their places better, they can take that more strategic view and that this is going to allow them to uh, deliver ultimately a more prosperous, more inclusive city region. Yeah, great. Okay, cheers. Alright, so I think we're going to hop off at the next stop. Yeah, well, thanks very much, Akash. I've enjoyed yeah. my first trip on a B-Network bus. From one trailblazer to another, I then spoke with Dr Fiona Aldridge, who advises Mayor Andy Street as Head of Insight, Economic Delivery, Skills and Communities at West Midlands Combined Authority, which also recently concluded a deeper devolution deal with the government. We caught up over coffee in a busy conference bar, still at Conservative Party Conference in Manchester. Authority. I work in a directorate that covers economic delivery, skills, health and communities. We have a devolved skills budget of about £165, £170 million every year. And what we're trying to do is really shape that budget so that we invest in things that will improve outcomes for our residents and our businesses, support local economic growth, um, and generally help people to upskill, gain new qualifications and get great work. Yeah, and it's been a really kind of key priority for, for the Mayor and the combined authority as a whole. It, uh, 
I know. Um, I mean, can you say a little bit about what is it that devolution is particularly that adult education budget, I think, and, and other elements of skills policy um, has has enabled you to do? Like, how have you been able to, in, in a real sense, reshape the skills system in the West Midlands? Absolutely. So what we've really tried to do since devolution of the skills budget in 2019 is really focus it on meeting the skills priorities of the region. So uh, our residents are uh, not as highly qualified as UK average, so we're really trying to boost their qualifications, address skills gaps, but really importantly, make sure that they've got the skills to get the great new jobs that are emerging in our economy. How are you um, tracking progress? I mean, what kind of data are you using to, to work out where the skills gaps are and then to assess whether your interventions are, are working and improving outcomes for the region? So we're keeping a really close eye on our labour market and on our vacancies and those parts of the economy that we think have real potential for growth. The Mayor launched his plan for growth with a focus on eight cluster areas and we want to make sure that we've got the right pipeline of skills provision so that when those great new jobs come on stream then it's our local residents that have um, the skills, the opportunities and the information about how to get hold of them for themselves. Yeah, great. And I mean, what have, what have been some of the, the core areas where you've identified or the sectors where you've identified there is a need for more skilled workers, businesses are, are kind of asking you um, to, to intervene to ensure that people are there to fill the jobs they want to create. So there's loads of great opportunities across the region. There's a, there's not, there's a, a need for us to develop the digital skills of all of our um, working age population, but there's particular growth um, in programming, in software development where there's some great jobs there, um, in uh, um, finance and business professionals. I'm thinking about the West Midlands reputation around automotive. We're investing in electric vehicles and want to make sure that as our economy transitions, then people are able to trans transition their skills. And indeed, new people get a chance to move into that sort of electric vehicle marketing. That's one just one example of what we're doing. So having heard how Andy's Burnham and Streets have been using their devolved powers, I then spoke with someone involved in getting the brand new East Midlands devolution deal off the ground. Ben Bradley. So I am the Member of Parliament from Mansfield. Uh, I am the leader of Nottinghamshire County Council and I guess I'm doing both of those roles in the absence of our region having a regional mayor who goes between lateral and local and, and joins the dots. Uh, but we are getting one of those so I'm also the Conservative candidate for that role. Yes, you were just recently selected for that. Congratulations on that. If we end up with that uh, devolution deal being imp implemented as of next uh, May May 2024. There's going to be a combined authority operating across Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire, which I think for some people is not the, necessarily the most natural scale at which to have a tier of government. People understand counties, they understand local government. What's the logic for operating at that scale, would you say? I think when it comes to the current framework for devolution, scale is important. I think if you want to have real clout in the conversation, you know, it's Andy Street, Andy Burnham that dominate the, the kind of national environment, isn't it, in terms of influence for their areas? It's because they're big combined authorities and therefore have a huge amount of clout and a huge amount of funding. We want to be big, we don't want to be a bit part player in this. But I also think actually uh, it's not about just trying to have a plan that fits in everywhere from Glossop, which is nearly Manchester, all the way down to uh, West Bridgeford, east of Nottingham, two and a half hours drive away. Um, 
it's about being more local. So we're getting national things that are currently decided in Whitehall for us, and we're bringing them down to a regional level. So regardless of the footprint in some ways, everybody in Glossop and West Bridgeford has more of a voice in a conversation at that scale than they do on a national scale. Right, and, and what about the, the yeah. mayoral model specifically? So if you're successful, you're, you're going to be directly elected by large population. Don't know exactly what the electorate is mm. size-wise. You probably do, but two point two million. Two point two million, right? There you go. Um, so you know that's 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 a big mandate for a single mm. individual. But it's, it's it's a model, the mayoral model that, that isn't universally supported. Um, what would you say to people who question why? need one person with such an important role. Well, I often start the conversations I have both with business and residents recognising that this is not a universally popular thing, um, but there are reasons why it's the right thing. Um, under the current framework, again, if you want the full clout, the full funding, you've got to have a directly elected person and government's kind of said, well, you can have the same powers as Manchester and the West Midlands as long as you have the same structure and accountability. That kind of makes sense and I think there's a logic in consistency so that people can understand who does what in our very complicated set of structures. But for us as a region, actually, it's important genuinely because we have a quite a disparate and, and divided set of structures and decision makers. We've got 18 councils of various levels uh, with various scales and, and clout and powers. So when somebody wants to invest in Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire in the wider East Midlands region, 18 different council leaders stick their hands up. Uh, they all want to fight for it. They all squabble about who's going to get it. Uh, and as a result, people are going to invest somewhere else. Because if you want to go to the West Midlands, you ask Andy Street and he'll sort it out. Um, we've not had that. So it's actually, that single, point single point of contact, single shared strategy and set of priorities that when we're selling our place, to private investors or to government, it's clear what we're asking because historically it's never been clear or we have 18 contrasting views of what we're after. So it's about that advocacy, but also uh, it's trying to join up the different dots and powers that you have got, the different bits of funding into something consistent. One of the big challenges of national government is that you, it's really hard to join up across Whitehall and deliver things that are coherent, but on a local and a place-based level, you can focus on it in a different way. A week later, I was in Liverpool for Labour Party conference where devolution was high on the agenda. I chatted with Jess Studdart, Deputy Chief Executive of the new local think tank. We've um, had devolution as we know it for about 10 years as a policy. Um, it, it's made quite slow progress in some respects. That The powers that we're talking about are still quite a, a slim combination of things that central government sort of doesn't want to do or that local local areas um, could do more of so for example transport spatial planning and some element of skills devolution but I think it hasn't really moved on that dramatically in those 10 years it, we've obviously had a bit of a kind of rolling process of deals and new areas getting new metro mayors and more recently with the trailblazer deals has really kind of changed things to shift into towards a single pot kind of settlement and a bit more kind of autonomy over the spend but over that 10 years I don't think I don't think things have fundamentally changed in terms of how we see governance in this country it's still a bit of a kind of negotiated settlement the different mayors are seen as sort of separate I think they're beginning to organize themselves together to kind of to pull more powers out of the center but the central state of England has kind of stayed largely the same. So I think that there's a lot more that a new government could do differently to kind of push things on and crucially kind of move power out of existing 
levels of governance and and uh, have something that's a bit more tangible to people yeah. and communities. And a specific thing, Keir Starmer's been talking about it since the beginning of, of 2023, I think, is this commitment to a take-back control bill. What do you think that such a bill and wider devolution strategy of Labour is likely to amount to? Well, I mean, on one level, it's really exciting that that's what Keir Starmer has set out kind of so early and so clearly that the take-back control bill will become this kind of this mechanism for really meaningfully giving power and influence over to communities but there's not been much clarity on what would go in it and then I think there's a bit of a risk that it's a bit catch-all or that there's not there's not a level of detail there that what how you know how is this going to really change outcomes and be meaningful and tangible for people because that's that's the promise and that's certainly what government responses so far to this need to take back control via for example levelling up hasn't quite happened it hasn't quite done that kind of real shift in shift in power and shift in 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 people's sense of um, their ability to influence things so i think there's a real opportunity for labor to take that commitment and the devolution agenda that they'll have as an inheritance if they were to get into power but i think there's a need for them to kind of go go a few steps forward and think how could they really create a system of governance and and an approach to statecraft that really does take power out of Westminster and redistribute it across the system. While in Liverpool, the Institute for Government also hosted a fringe event at Labour Party conference, also in partnership with Grant Thornton, at which we asked Paula Barker, the Shadow Minister for Devolution and the English Regions, how a future Labour government would deepen and extend devolution across England. Here's what she told us, as recounted by my colleague Bryony. We are committed to deepening and extending devolution across all of England in all its regional, economic and cultural diversity. Labour is resolutely committed to completing the devolution map, and we will work at pace in doing so, as too many areas could be left further behind if we don't get our skates on. We are looking to remove the requirements for directly elected mayors at Tier 3, which is causing some contention up and down the English regions. The Take Back Control Act will establish clear and timely frameworks for local leaders to request, negotiate and take on several powers over economic policymaking. Well, that's what we heard at Conservative and Labour Party conference in October. Back in the IFG studio, let's find out what our panel think a Labour government would actually do on devolution. Simon, you were actually sitting next to Paula Barker at our event in Liverpool as she made those comments. Uh, what, what did you make of it? Do you, do you think Labour is shaping up to be, to be radical on this agenda? I'm not sure I could say that they're shaping up to be radical, but I think I, I, I'd sort of start to work through their thinking in, I suppose, three different lenses. So I suppose, are they really defining a commitment that's continuing at the same extent that the previous narrative has continued on? And I'd say yes. Clearly, Paula made some very clear statements and commitments there in terms of what she would like to see. But I suppose in terms of understanding, that's got to extend beyond, you know, communities applying for ownership of their pubs or football clubs. They've got to be a real sort of deeper understanding of actually what the spheres of local governance and government is and what level of autonomy those places kind of need in order to deliver different scales of infrastructure and public services. And I'm not sure there is necessarily at the moment that 
granularity of understanding of actually how those things interrelate to each other. And without that, then it becomes a very difficult conversation in terms of delivery because there's a number of things impacting that. So at the moment, as we sort of touched on earlier on, we spoke about, is there local desire? We know there is. You know, in 2015, the gun was fired. 38 places put forward their proposals for devolution. We know that people want it. There's a commitment there that actually every one of those 38 places should be listened to and there should be a conversation about actually how that devolution kind of happens. You know, there's the mechanisms in place for it to be there in terms of the combined authority structure and the legislation there. But ultimately what's getting in the way of that is culture, but also responsibility and understanding and actually delivering government. And actually that's going to be a real test. You know, we'll come on to it later on around sort of thinking about any constitutional changes that might want to happen. But at the moment, in terms of actually delivery, there's some big things to change in terms of the workings of Whitehall that actually mean that devolution can be delivered on the ground. Yeah, Charlotte, Charlotte, what do you think? Do you you agree with that? And uh, I mean, what would you like to see Labour say and commit to over, over the next year on devolution? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worthwhile saying that I think it is radical or it feels radical for Labour to to commit in this way because it's been so non-committal during Keir Starmer's leadership. And Simon was alluding to the fact that I think they, under Lisa Nandy um, as Shadow Leveling Up Secretary, they tried to get away with this vague notion of devolving power to communities and talk about community power, all of which is important. But unless there are kind of the structures and institutions around that, I think it's difficult to make it meaningful. So I think great that Labour are committing to that. I think the next question is how much more radical do we think they need to be? And I think there's a whole list of things that we've talked about already that they could do and completing the map, for example, is just one of them. Local government finance reforms aligning behind these new structures is another one. Formalising constitutional rights, whatever it might be, I think this follows along a path that's already there. I don't think it needs to deviate radically from that path. I think it needs to just deliver it. Do I think they will? Well, I do question the amount of power that they will be willing to give away if they do win the next election. I think it will be less than those of us on this in this conversation might want. And I think that's partly because the state of the economy and public service challenges facing the UK at the moment are such that I think there will be a tendency to reach for centralised and centralising levers to kind of push through change fast. So there are some, some risks ahead. And do you think that tendency that you just referred to, is that because of the way Labour sees the world? Is it maybe also because of the kind of advice they may get from civil servants, your former colleagues in Whitehall, if and when they get into into office? I think it's probably both, actually. Um, you know, I think the Labour leadership has decided that Andy Burnham and what he represents is a good thing. And I think that's great. Uh, but it's been a it's been a bit of a journey to get there. And I think there are some other kind of statist being equivalent to central statist approaches um, within Labour's ideology and, and values. So I do think that will hold it back. Similarly, in Treasury, I do think there is still that command and control attitude, which is why, going back to the points I made earlier, I think you need to talk about public service 
integration and cost savings and efficiency arguments to win over the Treasury rather than an assumption that local leaders know best because in Treasury, they'll think that Treasury knows best. Mark, what do you make of this uh, specific idea or maybe sort of vaguely formed proposition we've just heard from Paula Barker that Labour would try potentially to move beyond the the deal-making, slightly ad hoc approach to devolution, you might say, under this government, and, and, and perhaps almost flip the default such that places are entitled to bid for and, and draw down powers from Whitehall unless given a good reason why they're not ready or they don't have the capacity to do so effectively, for instance. I think it's encouraging for proponents of devolution, but I think it risks approaching the problem from the wrong end. One of the key tasks of any incoming government will be to, rather than to introduce a lot of new powers, to actually channel spending programmes and government activities down to metro mayoralties. Because metro mayoralties actually have quite a lot of powers already. They just, a lot of the time, don't have the money to use them or somebody else in the in the same space has more money than they do to use them. So I think actually making Metro Mayors the sort of the go-to points for a government wishing to deliver things in localities is much more important than debates around what powers everybody has. And I think and in that respect, I'll, I'll just say that I think it's potentially the, the take-back control bill, which has um, received a lot of attention from Labour. Potentially, that's a bit of a red herring, because actually the Cities and Local Government Devolution Act already has huge powers to give powers away. You can give almost any power away simply using that act. You you don't need another act to do that. The question is, what do the powers constitute and how effectively can they be used in practice? Okay, I mean, Adam, what do you think? I mean, both, both on what Mark has just been referring to and also on Labour's commitment that it will perhaps water down the requirement for places to adopt a mayoral model of, of leadership in order to be eligible for the for the biggest package of devolved powers. Yeah, I mean, just on the question of radicalism, the thing that Labour have absolutely bottled is fiscal devolution, right? And to be clear, the Conservatives have also bottled that. They've been in government, they haven't gone far enough. But there was a real opportunity in the Brown Commission particularly to set out a big, bold stall on what their plans were going to be on fiscal devolution. And what was the line? It was some sort of kind of fudge that said something along the lines of the shadow chancellor will be considering these proposals in the near future and then ruled out any sort of fiscal devolution. So that's hugely disappointing, an area where I want both parties, all parties, to go much, much further. On this question of the mayoral requirement, um, I think it would be an enormous mistake to say that you do not need a mayor to have the highest level of devolution. Um, I think it would be such a clear mistake that I actually don't think Labour will do it. I think they'll get in and say, actually, having looked at things, we still do believe that the highest level of devolution should require a mayor. You can bring together combined authorities, have an evolutionary way of getting there. I think that's right. That's for a couple of reasons. One, accountability is the term that's often used in the sort of Whitehall documents. And that's true in the sense that you need an individual whose name is literally on the form or who comes along to account for a particular form of funding. But the much bigger part of accountability is around profile that what these mayors have done is introduced nationally recognised figures responsible for really big portions of budgets. And it matters that more people can name Andy Burnham than their council leader. It matters that the same is true across the majority of metro mayoral areas. And whenever an MP says to me, oh, well, um, we, we can do well enough with our county council leader, I say, well, how many people outside of your patch can name them? Sorry, county council has a revenue budget of about a 
billion quid just over. How many people can name that individual outside of Surrey? So profile matters for driving investment, for getting into Whitehall and banging heads together, and for being accountable in your area. But the other thing is partnership. So Charlotte very rightly talked about the benefits of integrating different functions in order to save money, in order to improve outcomes. It's funny, in my old job, I would spend loads of time like crossing out words like integration, because that would terrify council leaders because the integration of early years means I combined authority and coming after your money leader of a council in a context when they've had a lot of their funding reduced and so are understandably very protective and so if you want partnership you need an individual that doesn't just take the perspective of each of your councils but looks at an issue in the round can with some autonomy decide between those different preferences bids priorities where you're going to build a bus stop or where you're going to increase funding in early years or who you're going to challenge about their scale of delivery, you need someone that isn't just a committee of the seven people there already to adjudicate between those people. So you need profile, you need someone that can drive partnership. And that's why I think the mayoral model works. And by the way, why every other country has landed on the mayoral model as working. We're the ones that are still messing about trying to lead cities by committee. The final thing I wanted to pick up on from Labour Conference and, and, and what we heard there was about the commitment to complete the map. So to, to extend devolution in some form to still more than half the country that's been left out so far. Mark, is that is that the right objective and is it credible? What, what might a path to that over the course of the next five years, say, of a Labour government actually look like? It's a very difficult path because it's sort of very overdetermined by the nature of what actually a new Labour government would come up with in terms of devolution policy. So obstacles that have got in the way of the map being extended so far include the, the issue of mayoralties, which in many places just don't like for the reasons that Adam has hinted at. Also, there have been difficulties in defining boundaries, particularly in the southeast of England, but by no means solely there. And I think... I, I always feel these kind of problems are political rather than institutional. They, they depend on winning hearts and minds locally and coming up with a map which, if it doesn't meet universal acclaim, at least doesn't annoy everybody. And that's a challenge. It takes a long time. And a, a number of the areas which have not sought a devolution deal so far have also, I think, quite openly said what's in it for us. They simply don't see the deals that have been on offer so far as being sufficient, sufficient in terms of money or power to put their energy into to embrace the risk of losing power, whatever that might mean exactly. And they've sought they've sought not to. Um, pursue it. I mean, you've seen Sir Peter Soulsby, who's the mayor of Leicester, yeah. who's openly said, why on earth would you want another mayor above me in Leicestershire for the whole of Leicestershire? There's no point. Not, I don't want it because I don't want to challenge, but there's no point. People won't understand. So I think it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of argument. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's an alternative solution to why would you want to have two mayors, which other places have, have done, like in Bristol, where they've moved away from the city mayor model? I don't suppose Peter Salisbury would like that solution either. Um, OK, final words, uh, Charlotte, uh, to you. I mean, picking up on, 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 on this issue as well. I mean, do you think should, Labour should be aiming for something more systematic, maybe something more uniform across the whole country? Or in reality, should it be 
comfortable with messiness, which is a phrase used by Lisa Nandy when she was the shadow for this at another IFG Grant Thornton event, as it happens earlier this year. I think for constitutional clarity and neatness, completing the, the map is a very attractive idea. I think in reality, something that's more akin to messiness is overwhelmingly much more likely and not necessarily a problem if it can enable kind of horses for courses picking up on the points that Mark has made. I think what Labour should be guarding against however is some of the traps that the Osborne era got themselves into which was that it was a deal-based process that was tightly controlled by the centre and whilst claiming to be bespoke was ultimately nothing of the sort and so I think there you got the worst of all worlds and I think Labour should learn from that process and think about how it can move as swiftly as possible to enable the shoring up of local government as a sector in its entirety and then bolstering the institutions that are starting to mature and reap the benefits that the opportunities of devolution present. Thank you again to Charlotte Aldrich, Mark Sanford, Adam Hawksby and Simon Christian for joining us today. Thanks again to Grant Thornton for their support. You can find all IFG podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, all other major platforms. Do please subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.